Today's scripture is Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Glad you could be here. Um, if this is your first time here, I want to personally welcome you. Glad you could participate with us as we worship this morning. My name is Ricardo Seward, and I'm one of the pastors, and I get an opportunity to do the bulk of the preaching, and we'll do such this morning. Uh, we have been in this series uh, in the book of Exodus, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus. We're looking at chapters 11 and 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and keep your hand raised really high. One of our ushers will walk down the aisles and get you a copy of God's Word, and we say this every week because uh, we mean it. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we are handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and a knowledge of the Lord. Um, so just a quick recap, um, catching us up to where we are this morning in terms of uh, where we are in Exodus. Okay, so we looked at Exodus. We said this, to get Exodus, first you got to be able to get Genesis, and that is God creating this world and a place for him to be with his people. His people sinning against him and sin beginning to taint this entire world. God not quitting on his plan to be with his people, to be their God, and they would be his people. He chooses to redeem. And the way that he chooses to redeem in his own plan and purposes is that he tethers himself and his plans to a particular family. And that family we begin to see in Genesis, and the family grows. And it's not the best family in the world. The family is not at all an ideal family. The family is much like your family and much like my family, highly dysfunctional right? We've said it week after week. If you read through Genesis, what you see is it is like one Jerry Springer episode after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. You're like, how is God going to use this particular family? You get to the end of Genesis when the family finds themselves in Egypt. Now, while they're in Egypt, Egypt, they have favor because Joseph was there and Joseph represented the family. Well, when we begin Exodus, Joseph is no longer um, alive. The people, the family of God, the people of God, they've grown. There's a new king, a new pharaoh who could care less about them, and so he begins to oppress them. And then there's slavery. And this slavery has been going on for hundreds of years. Well, there was a man who was born in that time, um, and while he was born, that was during the time that they were trying to kill off the firstborn. 
where this child's life was spared, and he was raised actually in Pharaoh's home. The child was named Moses. Moses grew up. He began to see the situation and the oppression that were going on with his own people. Um, Though he was being raised as an Egyptian, he was a Hebrew. He saw a Hebrew man and an Egyptian man getting into it. He jumped in, and um, and he beat up um, the—he didn't just beat up. He killed the Egyptian man, which is, by the way, never good. Um, And so he fled into the wilderness. There, God spoke to him. And he spoke to him through a burning bush. After years of him being in the wilderness, he'd been married, he was living his life, and then God showed up in an incredible way. And God says, I'm going to use you to free my people, the people in whom he had heard all of their groaning and all of their cries for all of these years. And so it's in that particular moment that Moses now begins to be used by God. Um, God brings about judgment upon Pharaoh. And what we've said is this was not a story about the Israelites versus Pharaoh or Pharaoh versus Moses. It's by far a story about a sovereign, powerful God of creation against Pharaoh. And what this particular God begins to do, some writers say flexes his muscles. He doesn't flex his metaphorical muscles. He acts as who he is. He's God. Okay? There's no need to explain who, um, who he is other than the way he's revealed himself in the word of God. And that is, he is a God who, yes, of love and of grace and of mercy, but he's a God who judges. And he tethers himself to his people. And so what Pharaoh had done to his people, God essentially had done to God. So God begins to show judgment, particularly in the plagues. And what we talked about with the first nine plagues, whether it was the frogs or the gnats or the flies or even the sun that went to darkness, is that all of those plagues were a direct um, power play of God over those particular gods of Egypt to say that there was no sun god, that there's no fly god, that there's no... uh, frog God. There is a God who is the God of all of creation. And so the one who created begins to use creation in such a way to bring about judgment. And then also the one who's going to use uh, creation ultimately bring about recreation. And so we ended at the last plague, which was darkness in the land. And then in the town of Goshen, which was where the Israelites were living, that none of those plagues hit them. And then this particular morning, we begin to look at the Passover. And if you've grown up in church, Um, If you've been around um, vacation Bible school or something, you've heard this story. You've heard the story of the Passover. Don't want it to become trivial to us. Trivial to us. It's important. It is. It is the. This particular act of God's redemption is the biggest act of redemption in the Old Testament. It is the story of all stories in the Old Testament that have shaped and formed the people of God. That leads into what we'll conclude with today um, in terms of our time of worshiping through the Word is communion. Um, in which Jesus comes in on the Passover and points to the greater Passover in himself. And so that's where we'll be looking at this morning. A little different, we're going to read through bulks of section of Scripture so that we can get all of the instruction that God had given the people during the Passover, and then we'll have have its implications. And so let's pray, ask the Spirit to, to bless our time, that we may be able to worship in the hearing of God's Word. Father, we thank you that you are present with us by your Spirit. Jesus, we ask uh, just in your name right now that you would bring about conviction in our minds and our hearts and our souls of who you are and what you've done. God, as we look to the Passover lamb, Lord, help us to understand that you were just setting out the pattern of redemption, that out of death, you bring life. In order for us to have life, there needs to be a substitute. And Father, we, we, we praise you. Uh, we give you honor and glory. God, I just pray for those who are here who are either just stepping back into church after being away from worshiping for a while, Uh, those who have never believed in you, God, that you would clearly show yourself to be powerful and mighty, 
And then for those of us, Lord, who, who in some ways go through the routine of this, not that routine is ever bad, but Lord, we do it in such a way that we, that we miss the power of the weekly gathering of your people. God, would you afresh stir our affections and our minds towards you? God, we, we, we understand that we are far more shaped and formed by the things in this world, and we ask that we would be shaped by the spirit of Christ and by the word of Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So a couple, um, few months ago, so February, I had the opportunity to go, many of you guys know, to Africa for a church that we um, helped start and that is going well in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, this time I went with, with, with Dave Goffney, who is our pastor at Redemption Tucson. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And so anyways, so when we get to Africa, we're there and we had a, a day a full day of the winch, we had nothing planned. And the, the people that were leading us there was saying, hey, do you guys, we have something planned for you guys. Would you guys want to go and visit one of the, ori- the original slave ports um, of slavery and to your country and so forth? And I said, why you just say like our country? Like we were the only ones that, right? And so, uh, and I said, yeah, that'd be great because I think that'd be one, it'd be a great experience for me and uh, I kind of got some uh, background in this. And so let's, uh, let's, let's go. So we took this four and a half hour, five hour bumpy ride and we get to this place and it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. So they're showing us the different artifacts that were, that were there at this particular slave port. So I have a couple pictures that I took with my phone, so like nothing crazy. Um, those are shackles that they would put around the, the slaves' necks, and those are the chains that they would lock them into. And they, they'd be there for months and months and months before the next ship would begin to come. Uh, and then the next picture, uh, the next picture, so that's me. So, um, and, then, and then those are shackles that you put on, uh, they would put on their legs, and there's the chain there, and, um, you know, super hot there. So next to me is a bottle of water, because, uh, yeah. So there's... There's a picture of that, but then from there, we, we walked to where they would hold the men there and, then, and, and where they would live, and, and I can't really describe it because it is, it's rather gross. It's, it's rather gross and difficult um, that they would be there, again, until the next ship would come, uh, and then they begin to talk to us about the sort of things that they were being sold for. We're talking gunpowder, um, whiskey, um, things like that, tobacco, and that's where these, these men were being, these, there's a child that needs somebody. <laughs> There's a child out there right now just waiting on his mom or his dad to come get him. I can, I can see it. We're not going to use his name or her name. Um, so there, there, there was this, there, they, they would walk us from there to the sand, and then they would walk us to what is known as the point of no return, and that they would take the slaves to. And there's this particular uh, water uh, faucet, not a faucet, but like a well that was there, that this water was uh, highly contaminated, that they would make these men drink. And the reason why they'd drink it is they'd kind of hallucinate. And then they would walk into the ship. And so they walked us down to the sand, and they would have us close our eyes, and then they would tell the story of how these men got on this ship at the point of no return. It was intense. It was, it was intense. I don't care what your background is. It was intense. Um, I share that story because that's the story, it's one of the many stories, but this, the story that dominates our narrative in terms of our country as it relates to slavery. And I share it because we have to try as best as we can to understand Exodus afresh. That yes, there's plagues of frogs and gnats and flies, but before that's there, there were 430 years where these men and women were slaves, guys. 400 plus plus years of which there was no freedom. 
400 plus years in which they had a master from Egypt telling them what to do. These were years that many of these years, their midwives were told that when a baby comes out and it's a male, to kill that baby. This was moments and years of when you have a firstborn that you are to take this firstborn son and put him into the Nile and have him float away to never see him again. Okay, so to be able to understand this, these people, had, they were a narrative-shaped people. They had heard about the God of Jacob. They had heard about the God of Isaac. They'd heard about Abraham, yet they had not yet themselves experienced this deliverance. And then after these years, One of theirs, who, by the way, is not raised with them, comes back and says, I have a message from God, and he's going to deliver you. And for them at first to be really excited about it, only for them to actually have more weight put upon their necks. And they're going, we don't, Moses, you, you've, you've only brought worse to us. And even Moses questions God and going, God, you're, you're only making it worse. And God says, watch what I'm about to do. That God is going to enter in, and he's going to free these slaves. And so I don't really give titles to my messages, but today I have a title for my message and it's, get out, okay. Don't read into that, straight from the Bible, okay? So chapter 11, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague, more I will bring upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt, afterward, He will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Now speak now in the hearing of of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold. I I love this. God's like, listen, okay, now I'm about to do this last, last plague. It's about to be worse than all the other ones. But before I do this, just tell the dudes and tell the ladies before they leave, go to their neighbors, primarily the Egyptians, and see if they can give them some gold or some silver and some clothes. Right? It's kind of weird. It's like, I'm going to free you, but when you leave, you're going to be looking good. All right? And so, verse 3, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, and in the sight of Pharaoh's servant, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out. See? (laughs) You and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Now Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go in the land. So some of this is recap of what we talked about, of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, if you were not here last week, one of the things we said, oh, that when it comes to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, um, we have to understand what's happening there. Because there's a thought, especially when we read it again in Romans, particularly in chapter 9 and 10, that we hear about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Some people look at it going, like, well, that's not fair. Like, in some ways, it seems like some people might believe that, that Pharaoh was going to become basically the next Mr. Rogers, but then God um, hardened his heart, 
Okay, just so you know, if you read through the narrative of Exodus, there was nothing about Pharaoh that is, that is even hinting towards it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, okay? When you look at the word hardness, three ways are three different words that are used in Hebrew in that section in the beginning of Exodus. One, it shows that the agent is God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that God is actively doing something there. But then the other one is actually Pharaoh hardening his own heart, that he is complicit. And then the third one that is used, it's rather ambiguous on who the agent is. Um, what we see is Pharaoh is a very evil person, and God now is bringing judgment upon this Pharaoh. Now hear me, we said this last week. Oftentimes we love to hear the Bible talk about God as a God of grace, which is biblically true and good and we need it. That God is a God of love, which is equally biblically true and is needed. And as he's a God of grace and a God of love, he's also a God of wrath and of judgment. Now hear me on this, okay? Um, That's just who he is. We can't change that. And sometimes you will hear people as you have a conversation or maybe even you yourself have said it like, I just don't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. And if it's anything that you just don't believe or you don't want this God to do, then therefore you don't believe in that God. He, he doesn't change whether you believe in him or not. So the Bible, as we said the last couple weeks, is not a self-help. You can't come to this to go, what makes my life better? Or what makes me more dateable? Or what makes me more hireable? Or what makes me a better American? That's not why this was written. This was written primarily as a record to reveal to us who God is, what he's like, and what he's up to, and how we can begin to know him. It tells us what the world was like, what went wrong with the world, and if it can get better, namely, we see that's true in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if we come to the Bible for anything else, we're missing it. And therefore, if we begin to paint a picture of who we think God is, usually culturally based on what we like and don't like, then we may not have the God of the Bible. Thus, we don't have God. So the God of the Bible reveals himself as one who does bring wrath and he does bring judgment. And we are seeing that in the scripture here. And primarily, it's as he is going against the gods of Egypt, primarily Pharaoh. And he says to them, Pharaoh's not going to let my people go, but I'm about to do a work. And so Moses and Aaron begin to go speak to the people. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel on that 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. For your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, so here's what he's saying. I want you to do this. The Lord, thus says the Lord, I want you to take the lamb, and I want you to have the lamb should be of a year without spot or blemish. Take the lamb for your household. If somehow the household is too small, um, well, figure it out. Go to your neighbor. See if you guys can get together, and you guys can have a meal together. See how much each person could eat, and we'll go in together so that both, all families can go together. Listen, this is not, this is a communal thing. Just because they're having it in their households is because they're supposed to be inside. Like, no one could go to somebody. They're slaves, guys, okay? They didn't go, like, who got the biggest house? They're slaves, okay? So they're, they're eating in their homes, but don't think that this is somehow God having a plan for your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, 
Okay, as important as that is, this is not about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is about the God of this universe saving his covenant people, delivering them out of the hands of Pharaoh of which they were in slavery. And he's instituting a means right now for them to be redeemed and a story that they ought to share with their children for generation to generation to generation. Okay, this is not just one family or another family. This is God and his people. And that's thus the sharing. And if they didn't have enough, then they would link arms with another family and say, okay, we're going to have the same lamb together to obey what God has said. Verse 7. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. And do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so God gives them something to do. He says, you take the blood of this land, Take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel that night. There are certain things they're supposed to do. They were supposed to have bitter herbs. The bread that they had was supposed to be unleavened. Um, part of that was showing that what they were doing was in haste, so there's no time to let it, to let it rise. And so there's, there's now this, this feast of unleavened bread. There, and then you'll get instructions later on what that means. And you have a wane with they're supposed to eat it, meaning they're supposed to eat it that night. Anything left over, they're supposed to burn. Um, the, the way, another way they're supposed to eat it is they're supposed to have their belts fastened. That they're, they're supposed to have everything ready, staff in hand. And what that is showing in this particular night of the original Passover is that they are going to be ready to leave as soon as they get word that it's time to go. Hundreds of years. And saying, Moses is saying, thus says the Lord, it's time. It's time for us to get out of here and here's what we are going to do. Now this next particular section it begins to show that this is not written just for instructions for the people of God in Egypt at this moment. But this is written in such a way that the people of God are going to be remembering this for years and years and years and years and years. Why? Because it's imperative for us to be able to share the stories of the great work and the great works of God, not just to ourselves, but with those in whom are our children and our children's children and our children's children, because it shapes and fashions and forms us in such a way that it shapes our identity, that we are one with God. And so now Moses writes this to be able to implement this for the generations to come. Verse 14, this day shall be a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold an assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but whatever needs, 
Whatever, every, what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared to you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month to evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in the houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whatever he, whatever he is, a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all of your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel with the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the, on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statue for you and your sons forever. And you come into the land of the Lord will give you, and he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of people in Israel and Egypt, and when he struck the Egyptians, but, spread our, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded Moses, and so, did, uh, and so they did. So what you have there is the instructions for what they're supposed to do later. And the reason why you know that it's not just for them that night is they're leaving right away. There's some instructions that say for seven days you're doing this and for seven days you're doing this and no one's to have this. And you see the inclusive nature of God as well, that he's saying obedience is obedience. It doesn't matter if you're an Israelite or not, that if you're an Israelite, you're supposed to do these things in obedience, that you're supposed to get rid of the leaven in your house. If not, you're cut off. Whether you were a sojourner, it says, someone who's, a, who's not a part of the Israelite family but is living with them under God's covenantal care, or if you're a native. And he gives them these instructions, and it says for the first time, the people of God worshiped. They begin to worship God. Um, what that means is they begin to obey. Yes, here, here's what's happening here. Judgment is about to fall on the land of Egypt, okay? The land of Egypt. Not just the Egyptian people, but even their cattle. By the way, even the people of God, if they don't obey. Hear me. Faith and obedience are tethered. That if they don't obey the word of God, there will be judgment. They will experience death. Let me, let me make this clear. For us today, when we don't faithfully obey the word of God, in faith and in action, we will experience death. And you go, well, those are for people who maybe don't believe in Jesus. To those of you in this room who have professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, that when we sin against God, when we don't obey his word faithfully, we will begin to experience death. Let me just bring it a little bit home. Some of us are experiencing death because we are not faithfully obeying the word of God. Let's go a little further until I fall off the stage, right? <laughs> Some of us don't obey the word of God 
Because we don't know the word of God. If your only exposure, and I've said this before, if your only exposure to God's word is coming on a Sunday and hearing the word of God read in scripture and preached, as good as that is for our own souls to gather, as great as that is, um, if, if that is your only exposure to scripture, then you are spiritually anemic, like you're not doing well. And hear me, because this is not an individual sport type of a game, if you're not doing well, we are not doing well. And if that, that means as a body, we're not doing well to being faithful to God, especially if we don't even know what his word says. And so that means in some ways, we're like the story that I shared earlier. We're like the people of saying, I think God wants this without even looking and going, here's who God is. Right? So, so, so what, what happens now in Egypt is death is coming. Right? I want you to understand that is your God. That is the God of this world. Not a safe God, but God nonetheless. He's not worried about your approval or his approval ratings because he's God. He's not changing by what you think of him. He's not someone who is a, a, a people-pleasing Enneagram number two. He may not care about the Enneagram, right? He's God. He's God. And he's always going to be God, whether we like it or not. So death is coming to the land. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Pharaoh's like, just, you got to get out of here. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This, this part, they plundered the Egyptians. There's people who are going to, you know, that's not a good thing for the people of God to be plundering anybody. Okay, they had been slaves for 400 years, okay? This was just like a break, right? So they, they, they plundered. They, they, they had favor with the Lord. In verse 37, and the, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. What that means is about 6,000 men. That's not even including all the women and the children. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Here's what's interesting. When it says a mixed multitude, it's meaning that it wasn't only the Israelites. And very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked, they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. 
And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And it was night of the watching, watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The last part of there is this, the institution of the Passover. And what he talks about there is when this happens, you have, once again, God gives provisions for not only the Israelites, but even the sojourner, meaning anybody who was not ethnically an Israelite, how they can participate. And the way that they would participate would be by faith. And they would also have to have the sign of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Now, when we get to the end of these, these sections in the Old Testament, um, just like we said last week, um, we have to understand, like, what it's doing. Like, this is not a morality one. This is not like, and so now, you know, you don't lie. Or if you're going to take gold, make sure you ask for it. Like, none of those things, right? We laugh at that. We laugh at that, but there's a lot of weirdnesses out there when it comes to biblical interpretation. Um, the other way we don't do is we don't take these just metaphors, and, and now everything becomes a mer- metaphor. Like, oh, there's a pharaoh in your life, right? And everybody has a pharaoh, and everybody has a Red Sea that God's going to part. Your pharaoh is your boss. He doesn't want you at that job anymore. And your Red Sea is a new car of a vehicle that's going to take you to a better job. And there's going to be a man at the end of that. No, right? None of that is true. I'm serious. Guys, I, you, know, you, you, laugh, you, you, you laugh, but some of you are like, dang it, I, I was kind of hoping that. that right? That's not, that's not it. Okay? It reveals to us who God is and what he's like. That our, like God, one, when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. It may not be when we want it to be done. It may not be in the timing in which we want, but it's always good, right, true, and beautiful because he's God. Um, God is for his people, not because of anything that is uniquely, inherently, intrinsically valuable in terms of valuable or great in his people, but because he's for his people because he's promised to be for his people. That his word that he made, the covenant that he made to Isaac and to Jacob and to, to, to Abraham, this, that we learned about, that, that because he made those, those, those promises, God is being faithful to himself. And the people get a chance to receive that blessing. That we have a God who gives us warnings, which is massively important, though he loves us. And because he loves us, he gives us warnings. And when we don't abide or obey with him, then we are in trouble. He's a God who loves, and he's a God who judges. Um, when we begin to look at this, we, you know, every time you teach the Old Testament, it's always a difficult thing to go, okay, how does this connect to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like when I begin to look at this and you go, how am I going to connect to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And oftentimes it's very difficult. It's a lot of work. However, when you hear a story about how God sovereignly intervenes into the life of his people, sees their plight, that they're in captivity of which they cannot free themselves. And it's not because of what they've done or what good or bad, but ultimately because of God's love that he enters in, that he has a mediator who goes on their behalf, and then there's actually a sacrifice in order for them to have life. Okay, this is pretty easy for me this week, right? This is like the easiest week. So you mean to tell me there's going to be a sacrificial lamb whose blood is shed, and because the blood is shed, then the angel of death will pass over them even though they did not lift a finger. I know a guy. <laughs> right? When you look at the Passover, it is very easy, or it, by God's grace, I should say, it is clear for those of us who have the Spirit of God in us to see that Jesus is the true Passover. 
That's not to neglect this Passover. It is a Passover that is in a point within God's, who is sovereignly guiding history in a certain place showing us this is how he redeems. Out of death, there's life. But in order for us to have that life, there's sacrifice. There's a substitute. What we begin to see in Jesus is that Jesus does that for us that we ourselves are not in slavery in the ways that God's people were in here. The Bible lets us know that we're even in a deeper slavery. And that is that we are captive and we are in bondage to sin. And there's nothing that we can do to free ourselves from that problem. There's, There's no way in which we can liberate ourselves from that problem. However, God because of a promise that he made way long time ago in the Old Testament, that he sent his son Jesus. That if you want to see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you begin to read Exodus, it can't get more clearer than here. In fact, there was a theologian asked this particular question of how he makes the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, and he says this. Think about it. Think about what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you ask an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and our mediator led us out, and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land. Though we're not there yet, but he has given us his law to make us a community, And he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst. And he will stay with us until we arrive home. What he says is, not only would an Israelite been able to say this, this is exactly the same words that a Christian can say. Is that our mediator has come. That our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, has shed his blood. And that the way that we have forgiveness and receive grace is that we line under the blood of Jesus Christ. And that when his blood sheds for us, that he's now giving us the spirit and he's given us his law and instruction not to weigh down on us, but to guide us as he walks with us, as he takes us into the promised land in which heaven will meet earth and this whole world will be redeemed and restored in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb. It's the gospel. You can get excited about the gospel, for goodness sake. So we, we, we have this in Christ Jesus, that he is our Passover lamb. The same way the people of God, hear me, the people of God had to obey in faith. They had to. God's word was laid down. Put the blood there. If they wouldn't have, death would, they would have experienced death and judgment. Hear me. If we don't obey Believe in the blood shed of Jesus Christ, our substitute. If he is not our substitute, then it is we ourselves who will have to stand in that place. It is we ourselves that will have to stand in that place. The good news of the gospel is though we deserve that, that God has sent one that is better. He sent the true firstborn, Jesus Christ, 
to be the true firstborn and simultaneously the sacrificial lamb who stands in our place so that death passes over us that we now, by the Spirit, have life to be able to obey and participate in all that God is doing in this particular world to redeem and restore it. Amen? Let us never grow weary or old of telling the good news of Jesus. It is the only way in which we have life. Let us understand and see, just what we see in the Exodus, that our God is a deliverer, that our God comes through with his word, and when he comes through with his word, that we need to obey it. And it is through the blood of Jesus Christ in which we stand under, in which we are saved, in which we are redeemed, in which we are forgiven, past, present, and future. Oftentimes we hear people need to say, well, you just have to have faith in it. You've got to have big faith. It is not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. The amount of your faith does not save you. It is the object of your faith. And if that object is perfectly set in Jesus Christ, then we can say amen. If it isn't anything else, woe to us, for we did not listen, we did not obey. Amen? That God is our true sacrificial lamb in Jesus. He is our true Passover. Why don't you guys go ahead and close your Bibles because we're going to pray, and this is the perfect right into communion for us this morning. So close your Bible. Um, let me pray, and then I'm going to lead us in a time of, of response. Father, we, uh, we just pray for your spirit right now, Lord, to take the moment in which we have and remembering that Jesus is the lamb. who was slain for me and for the people in this room and for the world and any man, any woman, any child that would believe in him. The Father, in Jesus, you are both just and justified. That you show yourself to be just, that you do execute judgment upon sin, but then you are a justifier because you make us right, not because of us, but because of Christ. We thank you. Father, that you did not spare your only son, Lord, that we may now become sons and daughters of yours. God, we thank you for the gospel which frees us, help us to have faith and obey. God, we praise you in Christ's name, amen.